Welcome to the Cybersecurity TLDR show, where we save you time by providing you the too long didn't read summary of cybersecurity topics and news. You can find us on YouTube through video and all the popular podcasting platforms for audio on the go. Now let's get over to your host, John Good. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is your Threat Intel Briefing for January 29th, 2023 through February 4th, 2023. I'm your host, John Good. If you're watching on YouTube, I appreciate it. Make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. Also, uh, in that way, YouTube lets you know when new content drops. And if you're listening on podcasting platforms, make sure to subscribe on there as well and leave us a review. Also remember that there is a link in the show notes, uh, in the description to the show notes, so you can take a look at the articles that we cover and read a little bit more about them, maybe some of the information that we don't necessarily cover, as well as some other articles that we just didn't have time for because we don't want the show going on for eight hours a day, right? So we got to condense it a little bit. But check that out. That'll be on my website at johngood.com. Without any further delay, we're going to go ahead and jump into the first article here. So first article, massive Microsoft 365 outage caused by WAN router IP change. Have you heard about this? Microsoft says this week's five-hour-long Microsoft 365 worldwide outage was caused by a router IP address change that led to packet forwarding issues between all other routers in its wide area network, or its WAN. Redmond said at the time that the outage resulted from DNS and WAN networking configuration issues caused by a WAN update and that users across all regions serviced by the impacted infrastructure were having problems accessing the affected Microsoft 365 services. So if you're not familiar with how cloud works, cloud providers, they have a lot of these different regions and areas where there's basically different data centers uh, that provide services because the whole idea is that the closer that you are to a lot of these services, the better service and the better experience that you'll have, right? Higher speeds, all that kind of stuff. Issue led to uh, service impact in waves, peaking approximately every 30 minutes as shared on the Microsoft Azure service status page. The status page was also affected as it intermittently displayed 504 gateway timeout errors. Microsoft now also reveals that the issue was triggered uh, when changing the IP address of a WAN router using a command that had not been thoroughly vetted and that has different behaviors on different network devices. So the main reason why I wanted to bring this article onto this week's show, obviously Microsoft 365, a lot of companies, a lot of organizations, people use that service, right? But that's not the key, right? The key is they didn't properly vet the command or they didn't properly test the command to make sure that it was gonna work, right? When you're in your organization, you should have things like change management, that track and configuration management that track how the configurations start out as changes are made, you know, tracking those changes. And that way, you know what your configurations are like, right? And then when you get a change that you're going to make, you get it approved by a change advisory board or some kind of board or group or something like that who takes a look at the impact that's going to uh, take place when you implement that change. And they'll have to sign off and then you document that change. That way, when something happens, you can roll back that change. You'll know what happened. You'll know, for instance, you went in and you uh, put in this configuration change, this command, right? And then that way you can roll back that change 
And then of course, hopefully you have some backups in your configurations and things like that too. But that way, you know exactly what happened. One of the things that gets companies in trouble and gets IT departments, security departments, right? Everybody, businesses in trouble is that they don't properly track the things that happen throughout their network, right? When you make changes, something's gonna break eventually, right? Not all changes are gonna be smooth. And it's just, it's how, how it uh, goes down, right? That's how technology works. That's the things that we see happening. And so the better that you can track that stuff, the more efficient and more effectively you can fix things if they go wrong or when they go wrong, I should say, right? And then overall, you just kind of have that record of um, that kind of that timeline of when you're making changes, right? Then of course you get things like, um, like uh, out um, maintenance windows and stuff like that, where maybe if you're gonna take down a service, you have to notify the users of the impacted groups. So that way they know something's gonna be down. If you're in a company right now where you're working, you probably have seen things like uh, maintenance window emails, right? From your IT department or somebody saying, hey, this service is gonna be down from this time to this time. You've probably seen it in your personal emails too, right? If you have any kind of services or anything like that that you use, probably seen those kind of emails. So really, really important. You have to vet your commands. You have to have those change management processes in place. So that way you're tracking all those changes. And then when something goes wrong, you know what happened, you know what you have to revert back and you can kind of just go from there. So I'm telling you, very, very important. Very, very important. Next article, US Federal Reserve rejects crypto focused banks application to be supervised by the Fed. US Federal Reserve on Friday, so this is Friday of last week, uh, rejected crypto focused Custodia Bank's application to become a member of the Federal Reserve System, saying the bank's proposed business model and focus on digital assets uh, presented significant safety and soundness risks. Custodia, which is based in Wyoming and is chartered through the state as a special purpose depository institution, lacked a sufficient risk management framework to address the heightened risks associated with crypto, the Fed said, including crypto's potential use in money laundering and terrorist financing activities. If you're not familiar with why crypto is really um, not widely accepted by like nation state governments right now, or just um, governments, right? Countries, governments, it's because of something like this, right? Like this is one major issue. A lot of these crypto, um, these crypto trading platforms and these crypto uh, worlds, right? These cryptocurrencies, they are having tons of issues, right? We see issues all the time with fraud and um, some of them getting hacked and like all these kinds of things, right? And risk management is extremely important, especially in the financial world, as far as risk and really trying to focus on how much things cost, how much they will, uh, it will impact you if you, know, you, you have a building that goes out of service or something, right? Like all this stuff. Uh, in that financial world, they really focus on risk, right? In cybersecurity, we're trying to get to that point and we're evolving, really starting to focus more and more on risk, which is where you should be and what you should be doing. But the problem is with us, right? Like in cybersecurity, it's a little bit more subjective in some cases. So it's not necessarily like a hard uh, dollar figure that something will be impacted because of this or because of that. 
And that's where you get like qualitative and quantitative risk assessments and all those kinds of other stuff, right? But that's a real big problem in the crypto world. The Fed also issued a policy statement in conjunction with the denial of custodian banks application, clarifying that banks <clears throat> supervised by the U.S. Central Bank with or without deposit insurance are subject to the same limitations on activities, including those related to cryptocurrency. There's a quote. Today's action uh, would not prohibit a state member bank or prospective applicant from providing safekeeping services in a custodial capacity for crypto assets if conducted in a safe and sound manner and in compliance with consumer anti-money laundering and anti-terrorist financing laws, the Fed said in a news release. Yeah, so that's another big issue, right, with cryptocurrency in the crypto world is a lot of bad people they use cryptocurrency exchanges and cryptocurrency in general to launder money, right? To disguise where money came from, where money's going, like all this stuff, right? It's a real thing. And so uh, not only like malicious actors as in like hackers or groups like that, but also terrorist groups, right? Um, because they can't just walk into like a, here in the United States, like a Wells Fargo, Right, they just can't walk into a Wells Fargo and dump a couple hundred thousand uh, dollars into a bank account and not start setting off alarms. Right in the crypto world, it's a little bit different. There's a lot less scrutiny in the crypto world. There's a lot less regulation in the crypto world, and there's a lot more issues in the crypto world. Right, so it's not surprising to see that uh, the the U.S. Federal Reserve is very hesitant <laughs> to this because it just it makes sense, right? Like there's not a lot of assurance that any crypto uh, currency is viable or secure or safe, right? There are some that are probably better off than others, but it's a huge issue, right? And it's just gonna, it's gonna continue. Um, we're not quite at that point where it's gonna be widely adopted by governments. So, <clears throat> um, Let's see here. What next article? Watch out, software engineers. Chat GPT is now finding fixing bugs in code. Are you a software engineer? You might want to pay attention to this. AI bot Chat GPT has been put to the test on a number of tasks in recent weeks, and its latest challenge comes courtesy of computer science researchers from uh, Johannes Gutenberg University and University College London, who finds uh, that Chat GPT can weed out errors with sample code and fix it better than existing programs that are designed to do the same thing. Researchers gave 40 pieces of buggy code to four different coding code fixing systems, ChatGPT, Codex, CoCodeNut, and Standard APR. Essentially, they asked ChatGPT, what's wrong with this code, and then copy and pasted it into the chat function. On the first pass, ChatGPT performed as well as the other systems. ChatGPT solved 19 problems, Codex solved 21, CoCodeNut solved 19, and standard APR methods figured out seven, the researchers found its answers to be most similar to Codex, which is not surprising as ChatGPT and Codex are from the same family of language models. However, the ability to, to well, uh, chat with GPT, chat with ChatGPT after receiving the initial answer made the difference, ultimately leading to ChatGPT solving 31 questions and easily outperforming the others, which provided more static answers. So basically they're saying the ability to give it a little bit of input helped kind of push it along and get over the hurdles, right? 
And that way it could solve even more of these problems. So if you're a coder, you know, be concerned, right? <laughs> um, I mean, with code, you know, one of the things that we've seen is really this push to get to uh, automating a lot of things, right? Because with code, you know, a lot of times, some, well, a lot of times I'll say the results aren't necessarily static, right? Like depending on what kind of application or something you have, the results could be, be dynamic. It might not be the same answer all the time based on a lot of different factors, but a lot of the code behind the scenes can be static. There are best practices, things that can be automated, things that are uh, predictable, right? And things that should be in place. And so the better tools get like ChatGPT, um, that definitely is going to impact software engineers, right? A lot of times with tech jobs, what we see is we see this evolution of jobs, right? So for example, right, uh, let's look at like network engineering, right? Like traditional network engineering. So dealing with Cisco routers and firewalls like you see back here. Um, so that role traditionally was in every organization, right? You needed physical gear. You had to go in there, configure it, set it up, rack and stack it, all that stuff, right? Well, today, a lot of companies are putting stuff into the clouds, uh, into the, in the cloud providers. Uh, this stuff is not in every organization, right? It's just not. There are some companies that are entirely cloud-based for everything, right? There are some companies that are entirely remote. You know, they don't, uh, there are some that have physical presence, the physical office. So, you know, that's a, um, something to definitely consider if you're, into, if you're in software engineering or you're thinking about going into it. Just understand that your job that you see today as a software engineer is going to evolve and you need to account for this evolution, right? So instead of network engineers, we have a lot of cloud engineers or people trying to become cloud engineers because that evolution of the role, right? So it's really important. If you don't evolve, right, you could be left behind. Now with software engineering, I mean, we've got a ways to go, right? <laughs> but uh, that is something to keep in mind, right? If you're maybe five, 10 years out from retirement, I mean, it's probably not gonna really affect you, right? You're probably so high up in the, in the hierarchy anyways. But if you have like 30 years to go, if you're like 20, in your 20s and you have 30, 40 years of work experience left to give, uh, this is gonna affect you for sure, 100%. It's just a matter of time, right? Could be, could be 10 years, could be 15 years, could be 20 years. But before your career is over, this is gonna be a thing for sure. We've just seen so many advancements with this stuff in the last 10, 15 years that you know, it's really going to continue uh, the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years probably, right? So just make that, uh, keep that in mind and don't lose sight of that, right? And that goes for any profession. Uh, make sure that you really track the evolution of your career field, right? Work in cybersecurity, just a straight up cybersecurity analyst or something like that, GRC analyst. You have to track how things are evolving. I'm telling you, if you miss out on that and you don't do that, you will get left behind in a lot of professions, especially tech-based professions. So 
Uh, next article, TikTok's chief to testify before Congress in March. TikTok's chief executive has agreed to appear before a congressional committee in March as House Rep uh, Republican lawmakers step up scrutiny of the Chinese-owned video sharing app. Uh, Cao Zichu, I'm not sure if I, I said that right, uh, will appear before the House Energy and Commerce Committee on March 23rd. Committee spokesperson said, uh, which would be the first appearance of a TikTok CEO before a congressional panel. The hearing will give lawmakers, particularly Republicans, who recently gained a slim majority in the House, an opportunity to explore a range of growing concerns over the app. Those include alleged uh, sharing of U.S. Uh, users' data with China, as well as risks that the app could be used for propaganda or manipulation of U.S. users. TikTok has knowingly allowed the ability for the Chinese, and this is a quote, for the Chinese Communist Party to access American user data. Uh, Representative Kathy McMorris Rogers, a Republican from Washington, who chairs the committee, said a written statement. So if you're not following TikTok, <laughs> I would highly recommend that you follow this whole thing with TikTok because basically what's happening is they're under a ton of scrutiny from a lot of governments, but especially the U.S. government, because we know that this company is owned by a Chinese company, and we know that there are channels of them providing data to the Chinese government, right? And that's why it's a huge deal. Uh, it's been a deal for a big deal for a while. There's been a lot of articles and a lot of talk about this. We saw them say that they weren't doing it, and then they turned around and they had like four employees that were literally charged with spying on people. <laughs> like, you know, you can't make this stuff up. Uh, and, you know, they just keep, they keep uh, denying it. And, you know, are they giving information to the Chinese government? Probably. <laughs> but they just keep trying to fight it. They keep trying to show that they're uh, objective and they act, you know, as a separate entity that isn't influenced by ByteDance which is the parent company, but I don't think anybody's buying it. The unfortunate thing is with these like committees, uh, these hearings, is that usually nothing valuable comes out of them. It's usually like this big show, this big spectacle, where they, you know, whoever's there gets up there and then representatives are like, oh, well, what are you doing? And then the company's like, well, we're doing everything that we can and we're, we're fixing all the issues and da 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 da, you know, whatever. That's literally what every one of these is like. We've seen Facebook, we've seen uh, Twitter. We, you know, we've seen all these companies go up there and it's the same thing every time. It's, it's so worthless, right? Um, and a lot of times these representatives, they don't even know the right questions to ask a lot of the times, right? Sometimes you have some very sharp representatives and I mean, granted, right? They got to focus on a lot of stuff. Uh, they got to you know, be responsible for a lot of stuff. Uh, and then they have team members that are maybe giving them some questions or things like that. But, you know, they're, they're lawmakers, right? Typically, most of the people in there are lawmakers of some sort. Um, and, you know, they just typically don't really understand even the questions that they're asking. It's a lot of just verbatim repeating it. <laughs> so, you know, We'll see what happens. I don't, I don't expect much to come out of this, frankly. So, uh, Next article, researcher received a $27,000 bounty for two-factor authentication bypass bug in Facebook and in Instagram. 
flaw resides in a component used by the parent company, Meta, for confirming a phone number and email address. The researchers noticed that the software did not implement a rate-limiting protection mechanism that allowed him to bypass uh, two-factor authentication on Facebook by confirming the targeted user's already confirmed Facebook mobile number using the Meta Account Center. Researcher noticed a personal details section in the Meta Account Center that allowed users to add an email and phone number to both Instagram and linked Facebook accounts, which can be verified by providing a six-digit code received on an email or phone. Uh, Manos noticed the lack of rate limit protection allowing anyone to confirm unknown no, or known email and phone numbers both in Instagram and linked Facebook accounts. The issue allows the attacker with the knowledge of the victim's phone number associated with his Instagram, uh, you know, their Instagram, not just his, but um, with uh, this researcher's Instagram and Facebook account to conduct a brute force attack on the six digits code and then use the code to assign the victim's phone number to an account under his control. So, you know, one of the things that you have to keep in mind anytime you're taking input, especially from users, right, is that you have to have things like rate limiting protections in place. So, one of the things that comes to mind is brute force, right? Just a brute force attack in general. Typically a password attack, but brute force could really mean anything where you just constantly are bashing some application or service with you know data trying to get it to break or do something, right? Get past authentication, all that kind of stuff. And so one of the typical measures with brute force attacks and how you can help prevent them is by doing rate limiting, right? Because if Every attempt, for instance, of a, a login attempt, if I have to wait 5, 10, 15, 20 seconds or something like that, or if I fail logging in like three times and then I get locked out for 10 minutes, right? Like those are all rate limiting kind of protections. That's gonna dramatically slow down the process of somebody to be successful with a brute force attack. And so typically, like with authentication and passwords, the idea is that your password will expire before that person, that attacker, could potentially crack your password, right? So whatever, like a, a 12 character password, whatever the time is that it would take a normal system to crack that 12 character password, you would have already reset your password before that point. So even if they grabbed the database, encrypted database or encrypted password, they couldn't crack it in time in order to get into the system, right? If you don't have that kind of stuff, it doesn't really matter what you're doing. There's a lot of uses where those kind of protections come into play. And if you don't do that, then you're just opening yourself up for serious issues, right? We've even seen things like the MFA fatigue uh, attack, which is kind of the same idea where you just basically, um, so when you get a code, right, for multi-factor authentication. So if I try to log in, I get sent a code to my mobile phone or like a notice, like a, a pop-up. Um, with MFA fatigue, the whole idea is that the attacker, they just constantly harass that application and that user. So eventually you're just like, okay, yes, uh, allow access as the user. And then that attacker now has access because they just harassed you for a while and got, got you to give in, right? They made you weak and you, you said, all right, I, I give up. And they just, you know, you hit allow, right? Uh, but that's MFA fatigue. And that's the same kind of idea, right? You have to have these rate limiting protections because otherwise attackers will just do that, right? 
especially with normal users, like just your regular business users, eventually they're going to give in. They're going to be a little bit, uh, they're going to be a little bit quicker to get weak and just hit allow or accept or whatever than like a security person. But I mean, security people get fooled too. So you just, you have to be aware that you have to use these kind of protections. Otherwise researchers or attackers are going to find it, right? It's going to be a race. So Uh, next article, GitHub confirms signing certificates stolen in cyber attack and revokes them. GitHub confirmed on Monday that threat actors stole three digital certificates used for its desktop and Atom applications during a cyber attack in December 2022. Writing in a blog post, the company said that after, invest, uh, after investigating the accident, it concluded that there was no risk to GitHub.com services and no unauthorized changes to the projects. Set of encrypted code signing certificates were exfiltrated. However, the certificates were password protected and we have no uh, evidence of malicious use, reads the post by Ale uh, Alexis Wales, GitHub's vice president of security operations. As a preventative measure, we will revoke the exposed certificates used for GitHub desktop and Atom applications. Revoking these certificates will invalidate some versions of GitHub desktop for Mac and Atom. Con to continue using the software solutions, GitHub urged Mac users to upgrade the GitHub desktop version to the latest release. In contrast, Atom users must download a previous program version to keep working on it. So yeah, I mean, with certificates, if they ever get compromised or they get stolen or anything like that, you just, you have to revoke them, right? Revoke them, regenerate them, and just go through the headache of doing that because certificates are key, right? A lot of times our trust especially with like our systems, right, is built on those certificates. So if those certificates fall into the wrong hands, and for instance, you're using them to sign applications, what's stopping an attacker to go create some malicious uh, piece of code, maybe some virus or something, they sign it with your certificate, and now it's you know saying approved by like GitHub or whoever, right, whatever company. Um, you know, that's a serious issue. We've even seen attackers uh, several years ago. Um, there was a few examples where attackers were going after like the certificate authorities, people who are actually issuing the certificates, which is a way, way, way worse situation because you know those root certificate authorities or those certificate authorities in general, you know, are issuing out these certificates, and they can just issue out ones to them directly to themselves. So certificates are really important that you protect them and that when they are stolen or compromised, you have to revoke them and go through that process of creating new ones and getting those out there, right? So pretty, uh, pretty basic kind of security measure, but really, really important and one that you have to make sure that you do. Uh, Watchdog warns FDIC fails to test banks' cyber defenses effectively. In a report issued Wednesday, the FDIC Office of Inspector General identified major deficiencies in the agency's IT and cyber risk assessment program, which is known as NTREX, NTREX. FDIC is the independent government agency responsible for monitoring the health of commercial banks and savings banks across the U.S. In its report, the organization's uh, watchdog found that information used in the NTREX was outdated, and in some cases, a, uh, agency examiners were not completing tests. In addition, the study found that staff were not being kept abreast 
of latest cyber threat updates and no training for examiners was offered to reinforce Intrax procedures. According to the, to the OIG, unclear procedures have also led to Intrax examiners uh, failing to file exam work papers properly. So, you know, in the banking industry, in the financial industry, there are a ton of controls that are in place, especially in the U.S. But a lot of times, you know, the banks are tied to markets. So, uh, for instance, in the U.S., you have all these banks that are tied to the financial markets. If the banks collapse, massive issue, right? We've already seen uh, in the in 2008, 2007, uh, kind of that time frame, we saw a huge kind of collapse of some of the banks where they were just kind of giving out a lot of loans and doing stuff irresponsibly. Um, but when banks collapse, that's a huge issue for a country, right? Everybody's money's in banks. So if that crashes and then the markets crash or the markets crash in general, somehow that affects banks. Nobody's got money. That's a big deal, right? So it's kind of scary that, um, that this is the case because obviously, you know, you got to take care of the banks. Um, but I'll also say one thing too is that with governments, governments tend to be a little bit slower than some private companies. Larger companies tend to be slower than smaller companies, right? That's just how it is. Uh, because there's just more layers of things that have to happen, more approvals, more defenses, you know, more complex environment, all these kind of things. Um, but really important that uh, you make sure that you're doing your training. You're staying up to date as a cybersecurity professional. You are providing training for other people to keep them updated on cybersecurity stuff, right? This is a team effort. Cybersecurity is always going to be a team effort. And so you have to contribute and make sure that you're staying on top of your game and making sure that other people are learning about the things that are happening because we don't want them, like a, a, a first-line worker, to be the reason why our whole network got compromised, right? But, you know, kind of another example of an organization that uh, may or may not be funding training, right? Maybe employees aren't taking advantage of the training, but uh, most likely you know, it's not being offered. So you gotta just make sure that people are getting trained and that you're staying up to date. Let's see here. So next article, Chinese search giant Baidu to launch chat GPT style bot. Baidu Inc is planning to roll out an artificial intelligence chatbot service similar to OpenAI's ChatGPT, according to a person familiar with the matter, potentially China's most prominent entry in a race touched off by the tech phenomenon. The company's shares rose as much as 5.8% after Bloomberg's report, the largest intraday gain in almost four weeks. Baidu spent, uh, spent billions of dollars researching AI in years-long effort to transition from online marketing to deeper technology. It's Ernie system, a large-scale machine learning model that's been trained on data over several years, will be the foundation of its upcoming chat GPT-like tool, the person said. A Baidu representative declined to comment. So, here we go. Another Chinese product, right? Um, <laughs> oh, this will be an interesting one, right? I, I would really be interested to see what kind of things that people are putting into ChatGPT because as this has expanded and become a huge thing, 
you know people are putting some weird stuff in there, right? Like they're asking some weird questions, trying to figure out what it's capable of. Uh, you know, maybe they're asking some other stuff too that might reveal some more information about them. Chinese product, right? Similar to TikTok, this is gonna be a concern for sure, especially if it is really effective at learning from what it receives, the input. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's gonna be a big deal, right? So uh, it's kind of a wait and see, right? We'll have to see what happens with this and kind of how the uh, US government, for example, is gonna to respond to this. I'm guessing other governments will respond to it too, right? A lot of concern, especially with China and spying on users of, of uh, countries, right? They just, they continue to show that they are doing it and they're trying to create these, you know, popular products and they're releasing them mass scale and people are starting to use them. And then they're sending their data to these applications, which is then in turn sending it to the Chinese government. So, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens with this. Uh, it, it'll be really interesting, I think, to see how it's going to play out. So with that being said, that's going to be the last article for this week. Again, my name is John Good, and this was your Threat Intel Briefing for January 29th, 2023 through February 4th, 2023. If you're, listening on, if you're watching on YouTube, make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. If you're listening on podcasting platform, make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. Also, check out the description for a link to the show notes. We can see all the articles we talked about and then some more articles that were uh, that came up this week as well that we didn't cover. And with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up. And I'll see you next time.